Welcome back to the next edition of the Sports Pro Streamtime Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Now, Nick, while we were out at the OTT USA Summit in New York City just the other week, we were in the middle of some breaking news, whether it was, you know, a Woj bomb, whether it was Fabrizio Romano. We were right in the middle of some some big transfer news when it came to the sports broadcast and OTT landscape. Um, and we're talking about the RSN business, which is something that's kind of shaking up the, the USA space. But we had the chance to hear from Michael Schmeider, who is the COO and GM at Bally Sports, one of the major RSNs in the space. And, you know, it's just a lot of breaking news is going on out there, Nick. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been a dull day for the RSN world for the last year or two, but you know, it literally was in the in, in hours we the whole landscape and conversation was changing changing completely. I mean, I think it's worth before we dig into it just to remind people to give some context about what a regional sports network is, but also more more deeper than that, like just the scale of what an RSN might be. Because I was looking at it and go, okay, how do I paint this picture well? And I thought the easiest thing is to go to um, go to the populations of some of the the states, right? Because uh, actually, if you start thinking about markets, just just as a population alone, like California is thirty nine million people, roughly. Uh, Texas is twenty nine. Florida is twenty two. New York's twenty, and there's loads of of states with ten million. Now, some of these RSNs are just serving one state. Some of them are serving multiple states. If you start aggregating some of those numbers. Like California is nearly the size of England in population. So an RSN just serving, say, just California, and actually they serve a greater market than that. We're talking about some pretty major broadcasting businesses. They're not they're not little add-ons, which is sort of how we talk about them a little bit. Oh, I'm guilty of it because you talk about these big, massive behemoth media businesses which do lead the way in, in, in the US. Actually, these RSNs are pretty serious players offering a localized product which is actually to a, a population that is bigger than a lot of countries in the world so i thought it just good to set the scene with rsn's like for context so you know when we're talking to our european audiences or international audiences to go hey you should pay attention to this because actually these are more like for like with perhaps how europe exists in terms of scale at least anyway yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And I think that's something that came through across the content was just being able to translate things across those markets so people can take those learnings away. And, you know, it was interesting. We had some of our favorite Europeans out there and they were learning from the American marketplace. And you and I did some lessons for the Americans on the European marketplace. But to your point, it probably is worth, you know, taking note of the fact that, yes, these are RSNs and yes, they feel very unique to the U.S. When it comes to the size and scale, we we are very much talking about some very big businesses. So to hear the news that broke, I think within about 60 minutes of this session, um, it is quite important. Now, you know, like I said, the context of this, when we heard from Michael Schneider, who was uh, interviewed by a good friend of ours, William Mao, who actually was a guest on the Streamtime podcast talking about college sports and RSNs, quite conveniently, uh, led that conversation. It was within about an hour of that we heard the news um, of their bankruptcy. But it's also worth noting that we're going to have a, a second quick guest appearance from our friend Patrick Craigs, who is sort of our industry expert on the ground there in the USA. And he at least had the benefit of knowing the outcome of what would happen, you know, something about 24 hours later. And he gave us some insights into what he thinks is taking place at the moment and what maybe some of the fallout will be with that. Yeah, yeah. So really, yeah, 
Pat, for those that haven't heard or read any of Pat's stuff, he's he's about as knowledgeable a man in this industry as as they come. I think what, what's really interesting in all this is it's a very different conversation in many ways to what we have around the wider broadcasting space because we're talking about legal matters. We're talking about finance. It's not about how to drive subscribers and uh, how to driv- deliver broadcast products, yet they are still doing that day to day. This bankruptcy hasn't necessarily made them shut up shop. Uh, quite the opposite. They're still, they're still moving forward. In fact, I mean, even the fact that Michael Schneider spoke at this event was a pretty unique situation where not many people expected that to be the case. They thought they'd be wanting to hide behind closed doors until uh, all of this was sorted out. So a bit of a privilege for us, I think, to really have access to to Michael, who's the general manager of Valley Sports Plus, to be there to talk about these things because they aren't talking a lot publicly, really. This is sort of one of the first few um, appearances that someone like Michael has made. Absolutely. Well, hopefully everybody, you're going to enjoy this episode. Like I said, you're going to get to hear from Michael um, directly, but then you're also going to get to hear a little bit of feedback from Pat, you know, as the industry expert, kind of talking you through what you heard from Michael and what it means next steps going forward. So really hope you enjoy this episode of the pod. Afternoon, everybody. I think this is the second to last session in this room, if I'm not mistaken. So I think that break is the seventh inning stretch, sort of, for us. I'm glad you all are joining us this afternoon. I know it's a very boring topic, not much going on in this space these days, but Michael is kind enough to join us for, for a quick conversation. Um, do we need to check Twitter? For before we start, see if there's any any new. Yeah, I don't know. As of can, as of an hour ago, check for I us, know what's going on because this may be outdated very very soon. <laughs> um, no, but let's let's kind of talk about the elephant in the room per se. Um, lots of news uh, about Sinclair Diamond Sports Group, things like the B word uh, from a financial perspective. Look, I'll turn it over to you and just. What can you tell us about what's going on? And maybe it's also a good opportunity to use that as a way to kind of explain Valley Sports Plus versus the traditional linear RSN system. There's something going on. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, look, like, obviously, um, you know, I'm reading a lot kind of as as we all are in here. Um, Look, nothing's been filed yet. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about bankruptcy. I think, you know, personally, what has drawn me to this opportunity is, you know, no matter kind of what happens in the future, and I think you've seen some dominoes already start to fall, look, the industry does need to reinvent itself in the regional sports network world, right? I think if you look at how the economics are, if you look at how the business runs right now, we're in a new world, right? And I think that we have an opportunity, um, you know, are we at the kind of inflection point for direct consumer? No, I think we're at the beginning, but, um, there's no doubt that no matter what comes next, we've got to completely rethink this, uh, rethink this business model. And look, I think we're, we're really well positioned to, to be able to do that. So, um, look, uh, who knows what the, what the future exactly is going to bring. Um, but I also think there are a lot of really exciting possibilities about it. And, um, you know, should we, should bankruptcy happen? It's not, you know, I think is as dire and doom and gloom as everyone's making it out to be. Fair enough. You mentioned, you know, kind of uh, potentially a new a new model, uh, the beginning of maybe a transition towards streaming. Can we maybe wind back to the launch of Valley Sports Plus? Can you kind of talk us through some of the the planning, the development of it? Sort of what was in your mind the value proposition, um, and, and then you know, sort of how do you think it, it's borne out thus far? 
Yeah, look, I think um, one of the things that has that has drawn myself, the team to this opportunity is, look, I, I think these rights are still incredibly valuable. They just need to be positioned and marketed and distributed in a, in a very different way, right? And um, I think that the direct-to-consumer model gives us the opportunity um, to do that. Like, I think back to kind of when I was at Hulu, when I was at PlayStation, I mean, regional sports networks drove a lot of engagement. They drove a lot of signups. And again, I just think we're in a new world where these have to be thought of and the whole experience has to be thought of in a, in a completely different way. Um, so when we look at the launch, I think one, we can get into it in a little bit. It's been really successful, right? And we can go into some of the, the kind of a bunch of the engagement and stuff that we've seen. Um, but really the first few months to us has just been, how can we understand customer behavior better? How can we understand signup behavior better? We're really taking a streaming playbook as we look at this, right? Like this is, this is about how do we look at all of our performance marketing? How do we look at our signup flows? How do we really understand research and data better than anyone across the sports world to understand how this works? And I think that that's going to help us be very successful and build a product um, and build a proposition moving forward. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in sports betting and e-commerce and all this other stuff and all these other buzzwords out there. Um, but there's just, these rights are valuable. And it's kind of like, how can we get these two fans in a more easily understandable and quick way and give them another option to watch games? Um, and I'd say that we're, we're learning a lot, but we're really pleased with what we've, with what we've seen so far. Yeah. Is there, is there anything you, you can share about some of those engagement metrics or how, how your consumers are using the product? Yeah, I think one of the one of the best things, and I tried to give sign up numbers today. I wasn't I wasn't allowed to, but what I'd say is like a lot of us are excited about the sign up numbers. I think though, you know, who knows given given the environment, but from an engagement perspective, you know, what we've been seeing, I think it's it's really you know in a lot of cases engagement's really hard, right? People come in, they sign up, they try out, and they leave. And I think what we've seen, you know, we look at sessions per unique, we look at minutes per unique. Um, and we look at kind of where everyone's coming from and look, sessions per unique per week are, are almost at three, right? From an engagement perspective, um, the amount of hours, you know, we're seeing 30 to 40% of our, of our, um, of our users spending a few hours a week. And so what that at least means is that for those that are starting to come into the app and use this, they're using it a lot. They're not just trying it out. They're not just kind of checking out one game and then leaving. Um, they're really using it and, and, and they're, they're, they're finding a lot of, of value in it, which I think is really exciting to see. Obviously the next step is how do you get, um, a larger volume of people into the, into the top of the funnel? I still think there's a lot of confusion between authentication, between streaming, between where to go, right? Obviously I think the regional sports network model of, you know, zip codes and, and actual location, it, it, it's confusing, right? And so I think we need to break through, um, some of that messaging, but Again, I, I look at this as, as day one, right? No one's figured this out yet. And I think given our, you know, given our portfolio, given our scale, given some of the great markets that we're in, um, we've got an opportunity to figure this out before anyone. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up a, a good point or a good question that I even I had is, what is the customer experience in different markets? Because you're talking about the top of the funnel, it's actually, you know, 19 different funnels as it were, right? And so if I'm a, a, a Bally Sports Plus customer and I originally signed up in Florida, how does that differ from someone who's out in California or Arizona or Texas? Yeah, I mean, right now, sort of version one is 
you know, you're signing up essentially directly for a version of the live feed, right? And I think the, the our products and engineering team have made a really slick, clean experience that is, you know, that looks and feels, you know, those who stream, I think it's going to be a very comfortable, easy to use experience for them. But look, it's, it, it's version one, right? I think the real opportunity is over time, um, how can we work with our individual team partners, work with our leagues, um, work with the athletes who are part of our teams and really start building a localized experience. You know, you asked about a differentiator beforehand. Differentiator is being local, right? I, there's not a true local sports service out there and we can do it because we have those rights. And so I think as we look at content, as we look at other pieces of the experience, that's when it can really start to start to differentiate. Um, and, and that's that's where it starts getting exciting. You, you talked about this being being version one. You know, as you're looking to develop version 1.1 or version uh, version two um, is there are there things you see in other services sports sports streaming specific or otherwise um, in the marketplace that that you like from a functionality or feature perspective yeah I mean I think um, I think YouTube and YouTube TV have done a really good job of creating an experience where there's just a lot of content related to either that individual game or that individual team and I think how you know if you're a fan of the Mavericks or if you're a fan of the heat Right. How do we start building this place that you start to repeatedly come back to because you know that there's going to be stuff about your team there. Right. Like I know what YouTube's built around the NFL and some other sports has been has been really good, um, I think, on the on the whole. Um, so, you know, I think it's building that immersive experience. It's building that experience where, again, it's got to be repeatable. Right. Even if it's all well and good that we have an opportunity to get you to the live game. But how do we further increase those those sessions per unique and how do we get you coming back when it's off season and that's that's the really hard part i think about developing a service like this but it's a it's a good challenge to have you mentioned youtube tv and that's you know like a virtual cable box just curious there you know there really aren't there isn't a true comp to your service because you are the local service in in the majority of, of our markets it, what are the services that you may benchmark yourselves against? Is it the ESPN pluses, Paramount pluses, or is it something completely, completely different? It, it's a, it's a great question. We've, we kind of debate it internally, internally as well. I think you look at a, an ESPN plus on one hand, right? They've got live events, but they also just, they have a lot of stuff, right? And it's, I think a little difficult I mean, look, it's a, it's a great product for certain verticals, but I think it's a, a bit of a difficult one to navigate because there's so much there, right? Um, and then, you know, I think you look at a DAZN, which is also live events, but, you know, they they don't have things that I think are specific to certain teams. So it's, it, it, I don't think there's anything quite that exists like us, but again, when it comes to branding and marketing and bringing in subscribers, I think we have to go back to what the HBO Max is, what the Disney Plus is, what you know a lot of these streamers are doing because it's it's the same math, right? It's it's how do you build enough awareness around something? And I think that we have it actually, easy is not the right word, but we can be so targeted locally, right? If we have a message or something that's really appealing to that certain fan base, um, we've got we've got a bigger shot. And I think some one thing that we've started doing um, that I think can be really beneficial over the long term is a lot of our team partners are really interested in this too, right? I think for some team partners, they're like, what is streaming, right? And there's other team partners that are more, that really see the value, right? And are, are super um, into their fan base and where they can grow their fan base. And I think there's a lot of partnership opportunities um, with our teams that can be a real differentiator for us too. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a question I was gonna ask. You know, we were asking about 
sort of market feedback. Market isn't just the consumers that may sign up for the service, but it's also your partners uh, in the local market teams. And so curious, you know, you, you touched upon it already a little bit, it's kind of sort of what has their feedback and reception been? And what is their level of involvement as it relates to the plus service relative to what they already may be doing when it comes to the linear RSN? Yeah, it's, it, it really comes down to education because I think, look, it's, it's really exciting to talk about the future of, of RSNs, but look, like our, we know where our main revenue stream still is. And I think the teams look at what their main revenue stream still is. And so it's really important um, to position this to them as a complement or an alternative, right? For a younger fan base who might not subscribe to cable. And so I think a lot of education on what we are who we're trying to reach, how we can partner with them. Something that they're all really interested in is just the the user data that we're able to really um, bring. Um, and uh, the more that we can share with them on that point and bring them real-time insights, it's a really constructive conversation. Um, you know, there's the Cavs, for example, have been a really, really terrific partner. There's been a lot of sharing of kind of what we're seeing. Um, we've been working with them on some alternate feeds um, and you know, they've really helped plus up some marketing on their end in the Cleveland area. And if you look at where the Cavs rank kind of across all of our NBA teams, um, they're one of the top teams. And so I think, and, and all, all teams obviously talk. And so I think the more in that we're in with each of these and sharing data and sharing findings and understanding kind of who each of our prospects are, um, the better, the better off we'll be, um, you know, an, an, another example with the Pacers, for example, um, we worked on an offer with them for season ticket holders where um, if you signed up for a certain package, you, know, you get a subscription of Valley Sports Plus, right? And so I think as we look to next season, as we look to some of our baseball teams, I think that's a really, that's a really good model to drive awareness and, and bring the right people in. Makes a lot of sense. You know, over the last month or two, the the main word associated with this whole topic has, you know, if you said it, bankruptcy. But I think prior to that, the the, the other word that was often kind of brought up is price. Right. And so whether you internally choose to view an ESPN plus HBO max paramount plus as a benchmark competitive offering in some respects, the market is choosing to do so. And so, um, wanted to spend a minute talking about the rationale behind the price point you went out with in the marketplace and, and the decision-making around that. Yeah. Uh, look, I'd, I'd say a couple things on price, you know, one we're doing quarterly pricing research, right? I think, there are, I think consumer perception on pricing of these sorts of products continues to change, right? I think it was one thing right after kind of the peak of COVID, it's something different now. And I think it's really important for us to understand what a fans want. Um, I also think if I look back at some of the mistakes that, that perhaps we made in streaming a few years ago, I think we were priced too low, right? You can always go up. It's really, or sorry, you can always go down. It's really hard to go up. And I think coming out with, frankly, maybe a more expensive price point allows us to see a few things um, and learn a lot. And, you know, there's always there's always kind of flexibility. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of what I what I'd say on the topic. Look, I think when you look at what MSG came out with, you look at what Nesson came out with. I think there's core fans that would spend a lot. I'm like, I'm a diehard Rangers fan. I would I would pay for every game through MSG and not yeah. and not think twice about it. But I also don't think we're in the minority, or I think we're in the minority, right? So there there's got to be some balance. Um, I also think that you know as we grow, you know, are there bundles? Are there certain partnerships we can do where we can get this into the hands maybe a little more 
a little more efficiently and a little lower priced. And, and that's something that we, that we have to look at, right? Like our general feeling is the more people that have this, whether even if it's through authentication or through streaming, the better. Um, but we're, we're, it's, it, this is a, it's a huge topic and something we're constantly looking at. Is there uh, the prospect that in addition or, or beyond the base, Major League Baseball, uh, NHL, and, and, and NBA rights that, that kind of power Valley Sports Plus that to maybe not go to the extreme end of having you know, everything, try to have everything like an ESPN Plus does, would you, do you have plans to kind of supplement with some other sports rights that may be farther along the chute in terms of the long tail just to have more live programming hours? Yeah, I think a couple things. One, again, there are plenty of markets where we're only in a few months out of the year. And that it's a little hard, I think, to manage a, a streaming business when for six months you don't have certain programming. So I think that's number one. And flipping on that, again, our differentiator is being local. And the way I look at it, again, if you're a fan of this team, what else can we can we bring on, right, that, that makes sense? I think it's really hard to find content that drives scale right? Other than the, other than the live rights right now. Um, you know, I certainly think that, it, and, and we've done kind of a lot from a hiring and a strategy perspective in the content side of things, there are going to be two or three markets that we're going to look at to see how we can really blow out from a year round programming perspective and see if that works. But I really, I really do believe in, in looking at that. Um, and you know, I look at, I look at a bar stool, for example, right? You know, they kind of, we can debate on how they've actually monetized their content and whether they've been successful at it. But they're, you know, for many, for a younger audience, a must viewed platform, right? Because they have content that really goes year round. And so, you know, is there a hyper local version of that that makes sense in some of our bigger markets that keeps fans engaged and, you know, makes that price point uh, sensible for, for them year round, even if we're not carrying a live game. And then from a rights perspective, yeah, look, like there are things that are out there. I, I'd say that we need to get past, uh, you know, this next period of time before we look at more rights, but certainly... Certainly, I think it's it's definitely on the horizon. Uh, I've got a couple more questions, but I do want to remind you guys that you can uh, pose your own questions, and, and we'll pull them up in, in a few minutes. And I will even let Michael pick the, the first first one to answer. So definitely invest some time in in submitting a question. We'll we'll make sure to get to it. Um, you talked about how in some markets you have maybe you know multiple sets of rights, and there's some where you only have a, a, a single sport uh, or a single team. Um, so that, that seems to suggest that, you know, across the footprint, it's not kind of a monolith in terms of, of the offering. Putting aside the number of teams in a given market that you have the, the streaming rights to, are there any other characteristics um, that, that you've seen in your data about which markets are more successful on the plus side than others, however you want to define it? Kind of can use this as opportunity to talk about some things that teams are doing very well in terms of leaning in versus those that, that may be just on the sidelines watching. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's a mix of several different things. Um, one, you do feel the effect if a team is good or not, right? Like there, there are a couple markets where the team can be terrible and just the fans are so diehard that, that they watch all the time. Um, so, but, but for the most part, right, if a team isn't great, you kind of see that slope. Um, I think number two, yeah, we talked about it before. If a team is willing to invest in marketing and invest in really partnering with us, um, we, we see really opportunities there. I think three, it's been really interesting, you know, since the trading deadline, there's some teams that have made some really good additions and there's a lot of interest in it. Um, so I think that's number three. And then look, number four, it, it's been interesting, right? I wouldn't necessarily say that the markets where we have full teams, we've seen greater engagement. Um, but I think there's some, there's some markets that are bigger college markets that have a larger population of younger 
people and younger consumers. And that's where we've that's where we've really seen, I think, a pop from at least a direct to consumer perspective. And then the last thing I'd add is, you know, one of the interesting things that we've seen is just high school sports of all things in some markets have done incredibly well. And so as we as we kind of, some of our biggest sign up days have been around high school sports. And as we look at at, at that, hey, maybe there's maybe there's an opportunity to be a home in some places for that. So you know, it's kind of a mix of all those different things, which is which is super interesting. Very cool. This is the last one for me. So so if the folks uh, on the side wouldn't mind teeing up the questions in a sec, there's kind of a donut and donut hole situation when it comes to local market rights, right? You have you guys control the center uh, of of the circle in terms of the local market streaming option, but leagues in many ways have their direct consumer offerings that are out of market, um, various shapes and forms. Do you feel like at some point those those things are, are going to come to a head? Because from the consumer perspective, you know, depending on where they are or how they access the content, they may have to sign up for multiple yeah. services. Are you getting? Do you have any thoughts about kind of the convergence of the donut and the donut hole? I have thoughts. I don't know if anyone wants to hear them. <laughs> no, I think. Look, I, I think in an ideal world, there would be a platform, right, where fans could go to for you know for their games without blackouts. But I think as this whole situation has really shown. It's a really hard place to get to. Um, look, I, I'm a big soccer fan, right? And people use this example all the time, but I've got to go to Peacock on the weekend, right? I've got to go to Paramount Plus um, for Champions League weeks. I've got to go to ESPN Plus, right, for FA Cup. And so, so it's that's just one example, but that's confusing. I mean, if you're a fan of one of our teams, right, let's use the Dallas Stars. I can catch most of my local games on if I, if I sign up for Bally Sports Plus, right? But ESPN Plus has some games. Turner has some games. If I'm out of market, right, I guess I can get mostly everything through ESPN Plus. But my hope is that through all of this, we can kind of work towards a more consolidated, even if it's a bundle, right? Like I think it's everyone's talking about let's do what's best for the consumer. Let's do what the best. Like let's actually get together and figure that out because it's not that way now. And I think we've got an opportunity um, through all of these changes right now to be able to do that. Um, and that's my hope. You heard it here first. Maybe a, a Bally's and League D to C bundle coming coming to a market near you. Let's um, do it. You, you mentioned Dallas. It, 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 the, to put it in context for the traditional sports pro audience, right? Like you have cities in the United States that are the size of population wise of, of European countries, right? And so that's why local markets became a thing, and those rights kind of make sense in this market and really don't exist. Uh, anywhere else, as I think Nick and, and Chris said right at the outset. But I did promise you can pick the first question. So these are all really good questions um, that that don't have to do with bankruptcy, which is great. <laughs> um, how do you balance the desire to achieve a DTC growth with your existing linear affiliate agreements? Is there a tipping point where DTC becomes a priority? Yeah, I mean that that's something that that we that we definitely look like. As I said before, I mean the 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 bulk of our you know, the bulk of our revenue still comes from MVP agreements. And I think even if you, even in our most bullish direct to consumer um, business cases, it's going to take a couple of years. Right. And I think that's an awareness issue. That is a um, tech issue. And I think we're, we're doing a great job of getting there. But again, I think you get past this by making it clear that, Hey, if you don't have cable, right? If you're a younger fan, this is an option for you, right? Like the way even I, if I look at it, you know, we just did a deal with Fubo um, a couple months ago. I think that's great, right? If you can authenticate and use the app, cool. If you want to sign up directly, cool. So um, I think it's how do we get more people to just get into streaming 
right? Because I think ultimately down the line, yeah, you'll just want to probably sign up direct to consumer. That's where it's heading. But um, I think it would be really um, foolish of us to just think that that's all, all we should focus on right now. In Diamond's financial position, does acquiring more artisans make any sense? Maybe, maybe not, not your decision, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I look, I, I think that there is, we've got kind of bigger fish to fry right, right now. Um, but look, I, I would say longer term, I wish that there was, you know, I think I wish there was one platform that kind of had all of our, you know, every, every single local right out there. And, you know, I, I know that we would be, we're really excited about the product that we've built and the team that we have and, and kind of all the, you know, how progressive we think we are in terms of what we're building. And so we definitely were willing to talk to anyone who's looking to get into the DTC space on, on how we think this should be done. Yep. Um, you know, with, with the, uh, spin up of a, of a D to C service, there's an additional place where the game and the stream can be found. And so uh, the question around combating illegal streaming, has that become a greater focus now that, you know, there's not only the linear, but the D to C yeah. option. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also a really good question. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard. I'd say to stream this illegally more than other apps, just because of, you already have to be in a certain location to receive the stream. Um, so, you know, kind of a lot of the authentication that we have makes it, makes it quite difficult. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely something that, that is a top priority for us, for us too. To that point, you know, do, do you find, are there consumers that hop markets? Not, not because they're literally driving somewhere just to see a game, but like, you know, people are traveling. A lot of people came from out of town to, to New York city. Um, are, do you see in the user behavior that there are people that may have originated in one market that are actually consuming it in some other market? Yeah, there's some, I mean, you can sign up for example, in New York and for 30 days, right? You could, you could get access to, to this market. So there's, there's ways around it. Like we'll find people who are associated with different teams, um, kind of, kind of do that. But, um, you know, for, for the most part, I think everyone's just, everyone's just figuring it out. Um, we'll, we'll go with the, the one at the top, uh, Bally sports products are based on the engagement of locals with their representative teams. Have you ever considered the same model with individual athletes? Um, I mean, what I would, what I would say to that is, you know, I, I think athletes need to be a, a, a big part of what we do. Um, I believe in athlete marketing, I believe in influencer marketing. I also think that if you look at celebrities, if you look at people in life, like kind of across the world, everyone's a fan of their, of the team and the, the city they grew up in. And I think there's a huge opportunity from a differentiation and a brand perspective to tap into that. Right. Like it sounds corny, but everyone, everyone's a fan of their hometown team. So, um, I think that's gotta be a part of what we, of what we do moving forward. Awesome. And we will get to all three of these questions. I think we have enough time for that. Um, the one we'll, we'll tackle the, the pricing one. Have, would you ever price Valley sports plus to take more customers from cable? Is that journey you'd ever like to take customers on or will you adapt to wider shift? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, you know, right now, right. We, we'd like to, and, and we plan on with spectrum, for example, to sit down with them and see how we can market this together, right? A bunch of our renewals are coming up and look like all these, all our major MVPD partners have great scale. And I think in a perfect world, we'd sit down with them and just be like, look, how do we sell this together? Whether it's with wireless or, you know, Comcast is also in the RSN business spectrum, also in the RSN business, we don't compete with anyone. So I think when you look at kind of those variables, 
Um, there's a lot of things we can do to work together versus coming out with some message about, about taking consumers. Like, I definitely don't think that's the direction um, that we want to go to at all. And I think we all have to realize that in a few years, we all know kind of where this is heading. Yeah. But I, I would, it would be a huge goal of ours to work more closely with our, with our traditional distribution partners. Um, cause I think there's, there's a ton of opportunity there. Um, you, you didn't mention it in particular in terms of, of products you, or features you were looking at, but Clipper Vision uh, and, and Second Spectrum and what they're doing is, is obviously very, very interesting. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's great. And look, like, you know, Clippers are one of our teams, right? And so we've we've worked with them on kind of how to set this, how to set this thing up. Um, and our product teams have been working really closely together. And look, for them too, it's, and Balmer said it, it's version one. Right. I mean, I don't think, I think they just wanted to plant a flag and I admire that the, that, that they did that. I think it's really interesting. They've got some great alternate feeds. Um, I, I, and so I, in terms of inspiration, yeah, like I, it's, it's something that we definitely are interested in, in learning from, and there's a lot that we share with them too. So, um, I, I hope that more teams try and try and do this moving forward. Cause yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely the model of the, of the future. But, um, again, I think it shows that we're really in the, the first innings of this. Yeah. I think, uh, Balmer's fervor for Clipper vision is only second to his fervor for facilities in his <laughs> new stadium. Yeah. Um, last question. So a long-term hypothetical, challenger which challenger sport would you take into the RSN model lacrosse fighting women's flag football, pickleball. And I'll, I'll throw in also, you know, there's been some some forays in, into it from a soccer perspective as well. So I'll throw that as a number five. Yeah. And I wouldn't take this as, again, we're, we're not exactly in the position right now to be, you know, to, we're definitely thinking about what comes next, but I don't want anyone to take this as though we're, we're in deals. I, I think that all those are, are really interesting. I think one that I don't see there is, you know, I think CBS and the deal that, or, or the deal that was done with NWSL, I think is a really interesting one. I think that's a league that no one should sleep on. Um, and you know, certainly that's one I think that, that would be great on a, on a local level. Um, and you know, women's sports in general, I think are, you know, we have some WNBA rights, but, um, that's an area that I think needs to be explored, um, a lot more. Um, yeah, I know there's a, there's a pickleball craze and, um, as a, you know, I, I think lacrosse is definitely having a moment too. Um, there's been a lot of really great innovation there, but it, it's also hard. I think that there's there's a lot out there, but you know, what can you kind of, what can you bring in that will get people to continue to come back? And that's, that's a tough one. So we'll see. Awesome. It's not, well, not the easiest space to be in. <laughs> well, well, Michael, look, I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, to, to talk with us and, and also thanks sports pro for, for having us for this session. We'll, we'll turn it back over to you guys. Thanks everyone. Hello, everybody. It's Chris Stone, the community lead here at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. And we have a special guest with us today. We're also in a special location. You know, you might see the social clip floating around, but if not, and you're just listening to the podcast, we are on stage here in New York City. It's City Field. And we are going to be talking a little bit about the event here at the OTT USA event, joined by our guest, Patrick Crakes, uh, principal at Crakes Media, but also formerly a long time at Fox Sports. So, um, Patrick, what are any particular takeaway from the event so far anything that you've heard from any of our speakers that has stood out 
Well, I think it's been a, a you know a crackerjack lineup to tell you, Chris, and it's it's great to be on the pod today with the two with the two most front facing and important voices in me, sports media today. Um, but you know, I think it's been a great event. Um, you know, from Kevin Mayer to you know Marie Donahue to to several others. There's just been a lot of great um, sessions and opportunities to hear about how everyone's uh, approaching this great kind of media distribution evolution that in no ways is going in any way the direction that anybody predicted a year ago, let alone five years ago when Facebook was going to control the sports rights because of course they were, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, from, from my perspective, we had a lot of great people on stage, but it's just really cool to see the dynamics of people offered and also to see that there's a lot more sports properties, a lot more the tier two, tier three broadcasters as well, all trying to find some of the answers um, rather than we're just hearing from the big guys only um, and everyone is taking a different approach to where we were even as recently as 12 months ago I mean fast channels wasn't even on our radar 12 months ago everyone's talking about how to not only how to do it but how to make it work financially and what's the role of life sports in that and and we're not even at point like you know point one of that and that even though there's 1500 plus channels uh, fast channels in in the US alone so look I think it's amazing for me being here 12 months later just to see and to hear how far we've come in those 12 months. In some ways, the conversation, however, hasn't actually changed to what it was several years ago. Still the same macro conversations about monetization and about reach and so forth. But it feels like the conversation's gone from just what we need to do, or what we should be doing, to actually getting, we're getting some movement here. People are actually doing stuff now. And so now it's becoming a bit more tangible. Well, I think one of the interesting things we talk about some of the changes over the last 12 months, but one of the conversations that seemingly came up time and time again, um, probably one of the most well-attended sessions yesterday before there was some breaking news while we were out here, is what's going on in the regional sports network space. Um, so that was kind of breaking news that happened live. It, I think legitimately the news broke about uh, two hours after we had our speaker on. But, you know, Patrick, this is something Nick and I have been trying trying to wrap our heads around a little bit because it is certainly something that is unique to the American sports market, but maybe just give a little bit of context from your understanding, you know, what is currently the situation going on with the regional sports networks um, that's got everybody kind of maybe up in arms is a little hyperbolic, but it's certainly a point that people are trying to understand here that to Nick's point, 12 months ago, probably thought that they understood what was going on and now they're kind of scrambling a little bit. Yeah. So look, I'll speak at it from just holistically from the whole media distribution evolution that the RSNs are peculiar creatures of pay TV bundles, right? They, the inventory that these RSNs air didn't have a home 30 years ago. A lot of their local inventory was only on radio. It was national, maybe some over the air in some big markets. The first RSN created was what is now today um, MSGN um, in, in the early 60s to kind of do some of that, right? One of the first, was part of one of the first cable systems. So, so these, these, these RSNs were, were made possible by pay TV. Right, which for the past 35 years has kind of just scaled enormously and had all these natural monopoly characteristics that allowed it to scale and have pricing at bundled prices and, and forced customer commitment because they were essentially natural monopolies, right? So that's obviously broken down over the past decade as digital has unlocked and just a infinite and ever-growing exponentially amount of content options that first took out people that really had TV but didn't really want TV and now has increasingly because of the range of content found on both established pay TV and over on digital options kind of found ways to get their content on their own but it's created an enormous amount of disruption that 
cause pay TV subscribers to flee the bundle, the solution to that was the folks that were still in it still valued it, so you just raised prices on them, right? And that worked for a while. The pay TV bundle is still profitable today. Matter of fact, the biggest problem we're facing, and this is what the RSNs are showing the crack on, is because they're kind of hothouse flowers, they're very highly segmented, right? They, they're, they're perfect creatures of bundling, where you buy a bundle, you don't use everything, but the, the stuff you do use is really valuable to you, and RSNs were part of that characteristic. It's broken down in a world where the established bundles economics have declined despite the price increases and the new system doesn't produce the revenue of the old system, but the content costs haven't adjusted. So that's the existential crisis for all media. The RSNs are kind of like, I think of it as a train going to a station. They're like car number two or three that's going to the station. Now, you may be some other piece of content in the sports media business that's way down at the caboose, but everybody's going to this station. It's going to be a restructuring and a rethink on how do we grow digital revenues and make this system actually profitable, while at the same time, find a way to control content costs that are going to have to, at the very least, stop growing. So the RSNs are kind of the first car going through the station, along with, there's other examples, Thursday Night Football moving out to Amazon because nobody in the established system wanted it, uh, MOS having to go to Apple, to figure out how to do their deal, and even the Pac-12, what's going through it now. These are all symbols, right? Um, on the entertainment side, content spending being rolled back at Discovery and other places, Disney and Netflix. These are all adjustments. So the RSNs are important and to the entire system because teams rely on those economics for their payroll. The digital system doesn't provide enough economics to replace those right fees from the established bundle now. So this bankruptcy is going to show us a lot about what the future is going to look like because you're going to see some version of this, I think, over the next five years for practically everyone. So crystal ball out. What's, what do you think we're going to, where do you think we're going to end up with all this? Do you, do you see it's actually going to be largely business as usual? Are we going to see a big player come in and sort everything out for us or something in between? Well, in, when you think about part of an evolution, the old system is changing. It's not dying, right? The original theory was that dies, this lives, one-for-one one relationship. Much more complicated than that, right? That Wall Street narrative was wrong. Um, what I think you're going to see is that it's going to stay the same, but it's going to be different, right? So let's talk about in the near term, this is a bankruptcy. It's a classic chapter 11. You operate your business in bankruptcy. Talk of people taking back rights and, and doing all sorts of other things and direct to consumer that won't make any money um, because you can't price it correctly and scale and replace the rights fee economics. Um, you know, that's all very premature because at the end of the day, in a restructuring of the debt, Diamond is probably a viable business. And it looks like that the leadership of that group now is organizing that business to come out of chapter 11 to prepare to operate. Does that mean there won't be changes in rights fee structures? Does that mean there won't be some changes to the portfolio of the RSNs, which was created long ago back at Fox, right? You can make an argument that part of the evolution is this bundle of RSNs may not be the right bundle of RSN for this new ownership model, right? That was an older ownership model. This is a newer ownership model. And to your point of somebody coming in, we talk about ownership. These things were owned by media companies. Perhaps they need to be owned by a different set of owners that can view these investments in these RSNs, which are vital to the three-link value chain for distributors, the channels, and the teams, as I've talked about, you know, that, that has a view that looks more like when you buy a team. You don't buy a team to pay your bills next month. You buy a team for the capital appreciation. And you can, there, there's probably something to that, right? And then you go forward. Maybe the leagues get a seat at the table, they join the group and somehow, and you go forward and you spend the next five years figuring out how to make the digital side more profitable, 
right? So you can twist your dials off of established over there and content costs become more in line with the new revenue platform. I've got one question. I know we're going to be running out of time shortly, but one, one question on the notion of the rights being handed back to the teams. Um, uh, that is, I don't think anyone really wants to do that uh, or receive that really because it becomes a whole different ball game for some of those properties who have never done it before. We did see the NBA and the Clippers do this Clipper Vision concept, which is, I think, is in the is a possible roadmap if that was to happen. Um, but do you have any any take on on that sort of that deal or that relationship and what that could that be a blueprint for uh, other teams to follow if um, you know, if the rights were handed back, perhaps? Well, it's important to understand that Clipper Vision is completely compatible with pay TV distributors' exclusivity and their pricing. So Clipper Vision in no way threatens the established pay TV bundle in any any more than Nesson Plus or the Bally Sports RSNs do because of the way it's priced. Being priced at unbundled means you're not competitive to the bundled price. As a matter of fact, in many ways, you're marketing for the established pay TV bundle. And that's why if you have an established pay TV bundle that has Bally Sports SoCal, you get access to Clipper Vision, right? So it, it, it's a platform that had to be built. It's something that I think needed to happen, but that all happened with cooperation and acquiescence of the distributors. The distributors have these RSNs for the most part on basic plus tiers. They need exclusivity to monetize them properly, to pay the channels and in turn play the teams. So you can't create platforms that threaten that. By contract, the distributors can tear you or, or remove the channel. So. They build a great platform. I do think that though, when you look at this, as we get out of this restructuring and, and, and for all pay TV, cooperation with distributors to try to figure out how this imbalance between needing exclusivity on the established declining pay TV side and having to price DTC uh, at levels that doesn't threaten that or else all the money stops. You know, figuring out how you make that a journey instead of like an existential crisis like no pirouette to DTC, but perhaps we do a hike to DTC. Um, I think that's what we're looking at. So building these digital assets is good and the distributors recognize that. The question is, how do you price them properly so that they don't threaten, maybe even distributors can tier this, these, these uh, RSNs, but you make up for it finally on digital and everybody participates together. There may also be a third way to do this. Broadcast television, the new ATSC 3.0 uh, signal, um, is capable of pushing pay TV bundles out over the air. You could create skinny bundles. One company was trying to do that. Full disclosure, I was one of their advisors. It was called Avaca TV. Uh, they were not able to make their 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 fifth round of uh, fourth or fifth round of fund fundraising, and they went out of business. But they had an idea. I call it the widget. It provided relief to this system, a bridge to this system, and um, that we currently have with just pay TV and DTC. It added a third leg to a two-legged table, something like that could emerge out of this that will release the pressure on the chain and make moving forward to a full distribution system that's new, that's probably mostly digital, possible and organized. Well, I think if anything is for certain, is it from where we were 12 months ago to where we were today, I imagine when we have this conversation in 12 months again, we'll be kind of stunned by how much things have changed. So this is certainly a topic we're going to keep our eye on. And, you know, in 12 months time, Patrick, we'll have a review to see how close some of this has all come. I, I, I hope I pass. <laughs> I hope so. With flying colors as always. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys, for having me. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. 
ultimately want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast.